For those of you that don't know my Mission is podcast, I'm the founder, Karina Givargizov. Mission magazine is the first ever fashion philanthropic interactive media brand. Uh, tagline is for fashion, for beauty, for good. That's all what we're about. Um, I generally do these with my dear friend Charlene Spiteri, who's the singer-songwriter from the band Texas. But sadly, she couldn't be with us on this one. You missed a good one, Charlene. I sat down with Philip Cousteau and Ashlan Cousteau, who are doing incredible things, um, working hard to save the planet. So we discussed their world expeditions, their passion for the planet. Um, we also learn about Philippe's efforts in honouring his family's conservation legacy. They talk about pirates and sharks and how resilient Mother Earth is. And if ever we need her to defend herself, it really is now. So I hope you'd have a listen. It's quite upbeat and jolly. And I really was honoured to have them on board. And it was a great pleasure to speak with them. How easy is this? Who needs to travel for... Well, I was going to say, at this rate, with everything going on, it's all going to be through computers anyway. Oh, such a bummer. I know. Oh, I know. But the good news is, I finally get to speak to you two. That's right. Yeah, we're <laughs> delighted. Listen, that's that's the highlight of my year, is getting to speak to you two, because you're just phenomenal. And I'm, I have to say, a massive, massive thank you for agreeing to be in the second issue. That was just, I was so blown away. And what, what was fantastic that every time we do a new issue, I have interns and youngsters that work with us. So they got to know about you guys and what you're up to and what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. We were thrilled. Yeah, and it, it, the episode, I mean, the episode, the issue turned out beautifully. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to have to send you the one, we're currently the youth issue out at the moment. So I have to send that to you guys just so you can see and, and have a look and just see how how we're making progress. And Charlene can't be with us today. She's in the middle of being a rock star. As one does. Yes, no, she's got a she's got some new material coming out very, very soon. So she's kind of got tied up with that. But I've got to say as well, congratulations to you guys because you have a new addition to your family. We do. We and, do. Uh, she's amazing. We are very blessed that she is, I mean, of course, blessed, period, because she's, you know, a, a yeah. gift. But um, um, she's just been such a wonderful, chill, happy, fun baby, sleeps through the night. I mean, we are wow. very fortunate. I keep telling my friends that there's a disclaimer with the baby that if they have babies, it's not guaranteed to be like this. Yes, because so. a lot of people like, either just got married or getting married, and they're like, oh, we can't wait to have babies. Yours is so awesome. We're like, but this is not normal. <laughs> Our other friends with babies, so this is not necessarily um, normal. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, touch wood, it remains uh, for you guys. Um, I just, we're going to do like the intro before when we do, when we kind of pre-record everything, but um, I just would love to, you know, for our listeners as well and for me to understand, I mean, you, you both, what you're doing is so incredible towards conservationists, towards the environment. Perhaps you can just talk a little bit about your work, what you've going on at the moment and how obviously your your grandfather is Jacques Cousteau Philippe and how his legacy has inspired your work. Well, I was just going to say that... Uh... You know, we are in, in incredibly blessed to be able to work in conservation. It's something that inspires both of us every day. And um, for me, certainly, it's something that, uh, that I grew up with. You know, both my grandfather and as well my father, Philippe Sr., 
being such um, influences in, in the world. It's hard to believe, but it was really only, what, 76 years ago that my grandfather, working with an engineer named, named Emile Gagnon, co-invented scuba diving. And it's one of those things that, that we take for granted today, I believe, that we know what coral reefs and sharks and, and whales and clownfish and all this stuff looks like, and we understand you know, the ocean, etc., um, at least to a certain degree. Yet 76 years ago, the only thing anybody knew about the ocean really was what we dumped in in trash and what we pulled out in food. And, um, you know, my grandfather went on from there, along with my father, as I said, Philippe Sr., whom I was named after, to film documentaries and travel the world for decades and really open the world's eyes to the oceans for the first time. So growing up with that legacy had a, obviously a huge impact on me. And growing up with um, the story of my father, who passed away in an airplane accident uh, six months before I was born, you know, had an even bigger impact on me and always looking to honor his legacy and um, his journey and the impact and the influence that he had in the world before he died is really what drives me. And I tell you, it's the best job ever, right? I mean, I, I get to travel, I get to meet with amazing people and, and get to wake up every day where my sole purpose is how do we make this planet a better, healthier, more just place for all of us. So I'm very fortunate. <laughs> and do it with your beautiful wife. I mean, oh my gosh, what is that, that a dream job? I know. It's, that makes it. Where's the downside on this? I can't see any. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and for me, I think it was I met Philippe at such the perfect time in my life because I was a I was a you know red carpet correspondent and fill in anchor for for E Entertainment E News, and I loved it. And it was my dream job. I had wanted this job ever since I had seen my first episode of. Um, MTV's House of Style and Wild Burke. And I was like, wait, that's a job. You travel around the world and interview amazing people and tell stories. So I had been at that job for about seven years and I was kind of starting to get the seven year itch. And it wasn't because I didn't love my job. I did, but I was like, I was looking for a bigger purpose. And it was at that exact time that the, the BP oil spill happened in 2010 and I went to a talk, one of my girlfriends took me to a talk about the BP oil spill, and there was Philippe, and our eyes met, and that were like from across the room. I was wearing four-inch heels, so I think I was technically taller than Philippe that night, or at least definitely eye level, and that was it, and, and, and we hung out all night after his speech talking about traveling and, and our families and our pets, and that's just kind of when I decided hey, I can use this power of pop culture and the power of amazing storytelling and use it for good. And that's when we decided to kind of combine our powers and set out to, to change the world because it is a big, it is a big battle. It's, a, it's, a, it's an uphill battle, um, but it is amazing. And every day we see the hope of, of the changes that, that, that we and that, and that everyone can make. Well, you guys, are, I mean, you're really ahead of the curve. You know, I know that's such a, a kind of a, a throwaway. And you've been conscious of this for such a long, long, long time. Ashlyn, have you seen a change like in the entertainment industry shift its approach to telling stories about the natural world? Do you feel that now they're kind of, especially on the West Coast, like everyone really has to, if no one doesn't do anything, obviously nothing's going to happen or change. Yeah, exactly. I think before, 
you know, nature programming specifically was, you know, the beautiful BBC docs where the cameramen and women, but let's be honest, mostly cameramen, were embedded in nature and they would be there for months at a time trying to find an albatross or trying to find a polar bear. But now it, it's it's amazing to look at the entertainment shows on like uh, the Blacklist, where they where they talk about um, you know they talk about things that are pulled from the headlines. They talk about human trafficking. They talk about environmental degradation. Uh, they they talk the about wildlife trade. Wildlife trade, yeah. yeah, yeah um, or or even a show like Blackish, which we love, which really does you know the social kind of the social take on on race. Uh, and it's it's so thrilling for me to see that that it's not just like a little special episode of SpongeBob SquarePants saves the ocean, like it's really, storylines are are really starting to break into pop culture and break into our our everyday entertainment, and that that really makes me happy because you know one thing that that I noticed when I first started going to these ocean events with Philippe, you know it would kind of always be the same people that were in the audience. And they all agreed with each other, and but they were really kind of talking amongst themselves. And I thought, okay, we need to go out and talk to the general population. We need to go out to the people that go out on their boats on the weekends and that, you know, maybe don't, don't realize, you know, they, they're fishermen and they like to be on the water, but they're not necessarily activists. I want to talk to those people. Um, and that's really what we what we set out on, and it's so nice because I really do see the tide, for lack of a better word, the tide is changing, um, and, and it's really exciting. So, do you think storytelling is important then to fight for climate justice? Oh, I think I think that it's the storytelling and connecting the dots for people is one of the most important things that we can do. Because at the end of the day, you know, the climate crisis is not about polar bears. It's about humans and it's about our um, food stability. It's about having clean water. It's about national security. It's about human rights. I mean, it's really to us, you know, connecting people to other people through these stories is what's so important. And, And that's really what affects the most change. And I think that's what people don't understand, that that is connected to human trafficking uh, the refugee crisis, mm-hmm. poverty, it's all connected. And I think what I, I found really interesting and great about both of your work is especially with Earth Eco and, and Philippe, you've done a book, A Teen Guide to, uh, to Saving Our Oceans. It is the next generation, the younger generation that I think have really got onto this and, and embraced it and are very vocal and, and are actively trying to make a change and stand up to kind of make a difference. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I, you know, looking at my life and my work and why I'm doing this work, you know, it's really, I'm a product of good teaching, uh, good education. I, you know, had the opportunity to grow up with my grandfather and my mother, uh, who spent 13 years on expedition with my father and, and hearing their stories about the adventures that they went on and the responsibility we have to protect this world for all of us. I'm really just a product of education. And we realized 15 years ago, when I founded Earth Echo International, uh, the nonprofit that, that I still run to this day, we become one of the leading youth environmental education organizations in the world. We have programs in the UK and Australia, throughout the United States, the Caribbean, um, and growing in Europe, Asia, etc. The Galapagos. Uh, the Galapagos, right. Um, you know, I realized that, that, that the environmental movement as a whole has 
over the last modern environmentalists, so I would say 50 years, largely neglected education um, for a, a host of reasons. Um, and and I, we've done that at, at our own um, uh, apparel because yeah. fundamentally the, what we need to recognize is that the environmental movement needs to do a much better job of growing the constituency of people that care about these issues. Because let's face it, fundamentally, the kinds of solutions that we need are political ones, right? We need yeah. to, to, to enact the kinds of laws that will uh, curb greenhouse, eliminate ideally greenhouse gas emissions and fossil fuels, will invest in innovation and technology, will protect the oceans, establish marine protected areas, whatever it is. And, and in order to get that kind of political, long-term political momentum and support, we need a, a, an electorate and constituency that cares. So by neglecting education, we have, uh, I think, failed to build and grow an audience of people that, that really care about these issues. Case in point, um, Republican or Democrat, one cannot deny that President Trump ran on a, on a platform that was hostile to the environment and science um, and won. So, uh, you know, I think that, that, that we're still dealing with a situation where um, the environmental movement is just beginning to wake up to the importance of education. We've been at it for 15 years. Um, and we see the impacts of that because look at what's happening with Greta Thunberg and, and, and the global attention that young people are getting. Uh, education is absolutely key and it's exciting now. I think the world's waking up to that. Our community is waking up to that. We've been at it for a long time. Um, but young people are the best way and the, really the only way to grow uh, a, a community of people that care about these issues in our society. I agree. I mean, it's we we did the youth issue, and we had someone document uh, Grand London, a climate change march, and we did a panel discussion last two weeks ago in London. There was a young kid, Cyrus, who's 16 years old, who was so obsessively committed to being vocal about the effects of climate change, mm -hmm. what needs to be done, especially with the British government. Um, he's 16 years old, and after the after we did the event, I came up, I went up to him, and I said, "Do you want to be our?" Um, environmental editor and write for us because you're incredible and it's you're absolutely right it's about education and that's what i love with what we're doing with mission there was a lot learning from you guys and shows that you're putting together learn about your earth eco i didn't know any of that until i'd actually really dug deep into doing the environmental issue and that's what i love with and it's a lot of times people being ignorant and, and it's not you know if it's not front and center in them to pay attention they're not gonna um care i guess um when you have this younger generation and you must see this with kind of your you know your earth echo and everything you're doing caribbean pirate treasure <laughs> like, to keep you optimistic which looks i've seen that i'm so jealous when i look at that <laughs> that was a that was a fun show can I just, yeah um, yeah can i just come and sit on the boat with you and hold the bucket and <laughs> well that's just it you know it's it's also got to be fun i think you know for us there's as i always say that these issues are too serious to take too seriously um, we have to be able to laugh and have fun uh, while we're exploring these types of things because otherwise people change the channel. That's the reality. Um, yeah. And so, you know, the education is a big part for us, but also the books and the films and the documentaries. Really, how do we have a, a, a broad strategy for reaching lots of different audiences in lots of different ways and, and helping them connect the dots? That's really the issue here is, is you know, I like to say um, we need to talk less about polar bears and more about people when we talk about climate change because, these are issues, as Ashwin said, that, that affect us, affects our security, our health, our you know our economy, etc. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and I know that, Ashlyn, you had a your powerful TED talk about the intersections of entertainment and science. And I know that you used an example um, of what's it, uh, Leo DiCaprio's movie Blood Diamond yeah. to show that the science and the entertainment can be combined to inspire change. Um, can you just elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I remember one day, you know, kind of hitting my head up against the wall, just being frustrated uh, on how to diversify the people that, that care about the environment. And it just came to me. I was like, you know, so many people didn't watch Before the Flood or didn't watch An Inconvenient Truth because they didn't agree with the subject matter going into it. So they didn't even sit down and watch the films. But people went to go see Blood Diamond and because, you know, it was an amazing blockbuster and had great stars in it. But after that film, uh, every single person that went to go see that film looked at, didn't look at their diamonds in the same way. After that film, everybody got super conscious about where their gems came from. And that, you know, to me, I was like, well, that's the power of entertainment. That's the power of reaching across different political views, reaching across different um, uh, uh, age groups, different countries. You know, if something is truly entertaining with a good story, then people will listen. And, and, and you also can't tell people what to do. But one of the worst things you can ever do is to, you know, wag your finger at somebody and say, you know, that's not, you're doing it wrong. You know, you have to empower people to make the choice for themselves. Hopefully they make the choice that's better for the environment. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you, if you empower them with, with the information, then they'll make the right choice. No, absolutely. And they have to, and, it's, and, and hopefully the entertainment industry are seeing this and realize yeah. they're, they're really powerful. They can make change if they just, I know a lot of people are like sheep. They always wait for the first person to jump before they follow on and do things. And, um, but this is so serious now that it's when you, I, before the flood, when I saw that, mm-hmm. um, it was frightening. I have to say yeah. it was very, it was kind of overwhelming the state of what's, what's coming our way. Um, but there is, you know, that's why this next generation, Greta Thunberg, is such a fantastic example um, of how you can make progress and start to cause a movement with all of this. Well, that's the thing is that, you know, as, as Asher pointed out, we, you know, particularly when we get older, we get set in our beliefs and our ways and our views, particularly these days. Um, and young people are a terrific uh, venue or t- terrific avenue to change that. Because when you look at... Um, the behavioral psychology around adult behavior. It's really, it's virtually impossible to change adult behavior at scale. Um, The one exception to that rule is young people because young people have tremendous influence on their parents and their, 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 you know, the family group, uh, the parents, friends, et cetera. Um, So when you invest in education, you invest in empowering young people, you're getting a double return on that investment. Because not only are you helping them to be better prepared, civically engaged, um, switched on young people that understand these issues and, and will act accordingly, uh, but they also have tremendous influence on their parents. There was a recent poll here in the United States that demonstrated that um, uh, parents overwhelmingly turned to their children for advice pol- on political issues re- related to the environment and conservation, uh, etc. So young people actually have a, have a considerable political impact or can have a considerable political impact, even if they can't vote. 
I think because they're fearless, aren't they? They yes, just they yeah. have no boundaries when you're young, um, like That's that. And you're not uh, <laughs> older and jaded and, and um, fed up and cynical. Like <laughs> a friend of mine told me, said, you know, they don't, kids don't really learn about no or that it's something's not possible until roughly they hit college or right after college age. <laughs> Before that, they're kind of like, why can't we do this? Yes, we're going to do this. And, and that honestly, Karina, is what gives me hope mm-hmm. spending time with schools and, and young people around the world. Uh, I know for both of us is something that gives us hope and, 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 and makes us excited about the future um, because it's, it's bleak at times. And that negative hope sometimes for us, as you can imagine, some nights Philippe and I just kind of pour a glass of wine and just stare <laughs> at each other and we're like, oh no, this is bad. But then we remember, you know, we've seen it. We've seen firsthand. We uh, filmed a documentary for Discovery Channel called Nuclear Sharks, where we went to Bikini Atoll, which is where the U.S. did um, all of our nuclear testing during the Cold War. And that's where we dropped the largest nuclear bomb we ever created, Castle Bravo, on this tiny little island. The blast was so strong and hot. The sci- even the scientists were amazed by the power of, of this bomb that actually uh, vaporized some of the island. It turned the sand into glass. Uh, the blast was so hot. And it killed pretty much everything for, for a few miles. So we went back 60 years later and got in the water. And during the actual crater itself, there's nothing alive in. But if you just walked over the crater, got in the water, and swam for a foot or two, the ocean was so beautiful and healthy and thriving and that was that point that point for me at least in my life where I said okay there it it nature can fix itself nature can fix itself we just have to give her a chance um and I I think of that anytime I have a dark day or we have a dark day when you know in our lifetime we've lost 50 percent of the biodiversity on this planet in 40 years in 40 years Wow. But then we have to think, we think of the Marshall Islands and we think how, I mean, that is the worst fire and brimstone humanity can throw at something as a nuclear bomb. And six years later, it isn't just alive, it is flourishing. Yeah, one of the scientists we worked with uh, had a great quote that he said, um, you know, nuclear war, nuclear uh, uh, Nuclear waste is is really bad for nature, but people are worse. Um, oh and it's true. You look at places like Chernobyl with, you know, species that thought were extinct, you know, coming back and, um, the Marshall Islands in these particular areas where they were thriving. Um, it's, it's kind of a wake up call to the damage that humanity can, can create. But then also a reminder that when we set our minds to it, we can achieve great things and, you know, the, the help renew this, this planet. Yeah. I think, yeah. Passion and, and, Passion conquers everything, doesn't it? If you've got that drive to try and do something with integrity as well, mm-hmm. you can achieve most things, I think. And yes. actually, I'm reading, Ashlyn, that you've got a passion for animal welfare and, and children's health. And does your work, do you find your work as a probably a, a pastoralist and environment connect to these causes? Oh, 100%. I mean, again, it's, it's incredible how everything is connected. Um, there's the story that I, that I like to tell, and it starts in Somalia. And during the Civil War in Somalia in the 90s, uh, they, the, the Coast Guard um, was inserviceable. 
so it left their waters vulnerable to outside ships. And these are amazing, fertile, fertile waters uh, where the fishing had been supported for decades with, by the local fishermen. Um, so, but when there was no Coast Guard, these illegal fishing vessels from all over the world, the U.S., the EU, Russia, Asia, they all came in and started fishing as much as they could, so much so that those local fishermen couldn't catch enough fish to even feed their families. So those fishermen band together and were started trying to scare off the boats. Well, those little fishermen got, you know, the little groups turned to gangs. Those gangs boarded the boats. And one day they got a ransom for one of the boats. And all of a sudden the fishermen realized, whoa, this is, we can actually make money doing this. Well, that's how the Somali pirates started. Oh, wow. That is the story of the Somali pirates. It all started just by fishermen who... I mean, for millennia, had been supporting themselves, yeah. and all of a sudden, had no livelihood, right? Yeah. So they. It's crazy. So they they had to, so they armed themselves to try to protect their waters, and then, you know, and and now, um, that the the Somali pirates are still active. They are, you know, they're not fishermen anymore. Though people are working to try to get them to go back um, to fishing, but it costs billions of dollars in world in world trade every year. Um, cause so much of our, of our products go through that, that part of the world. And, um, it's even gotten the, oh, help me here, Flip. uh, Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda um, have started funding, you know, they, they started funding these, the, the gangs. So it's for return for their profit, uh, for, uh, in return for a percentage of their profits. Right. And, and wow. so I remember there's a, we have a friend, there's a department of defense report that I've seen here in the U.S. that is a research study on this crisis. And it culminates uh, with, with a simple sentence that says, for a few million dollars of fisheries conservation, we could have avoided essentially all of this. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of billions of dollars in direct costs, thousands and thousands of lives, the threats to you know hundreds of thousands of others through displacement because of the empowerment of these terrorist organizations like Al-Shabaab that Ashton mentioned, um, where they get a, a, a not inconsiderable amount of funding from this kind of piracy. And so here we are, advocates for oceans and fish and the environment, as, as you pointed out, um, but really it all comes back to people because we are part of these systems. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And empowering. And it's survival, isn't it? That, you know, that it's survival mode they, they, when they were forced to do that because... They had mouths to feed. Yeah, uh, you know, forty percent of the children of Filipino fishermen are malnourished because there's not enough seafood. There's not enough fish left for the, the for the to feed their kids. They have to sell everything just to keep a roof over their house, their head. So, uh, you know, it's it's um, it's a real crisis that comes down to being about people. Yeah. Wow. See, this is something. This is why I love talking to people like you guys because it's so educational. Knowing all of this, it's and it really. I find it so frustrating. Think, well, how can we do something? Like, what, what could you? I mean, how? What advice would you give then to someone that's listening to this, some youngster that really wants to do something and get involved? What, what do you think they could do? You know, we have a saying at Earth Echo. Um, it's not that you can make a difference, which is what we hear a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, go and make a difference. You can make a difference. It's the the reality is that everything we do makes a difference. All of our choices have consequences. What we buy or what we don't buy, who we vote for or who we don't vote for, all of those things have consequences. So the, the, the good news is that because all of our choices have consequences, 
every day and every choice we make has the opportunity to make a positive difference. Mm-hmm. And so we're big believers. There are huge communities and great networks out there. Earth Echo is a great example for young people um, that exist to support people who want to take action, particularly young people. And um, there are great examples on our website at earthecho.org of young people taking action. I remember um, I was down in, uh, uh, where was it? Where were we? Just outside of Plymouth with a little girl who's eight years old um, just about six or seven months ago when we were doing filming an expedition on fisheries in the UK. And um, she at eight is an avid um, paddleboarder and she would go out into her local uh, wetlands with her mother and noticed that there was all these balloons, this balloon waste um, clogging up the marsh and the wetlands around her community. And so what they realized is that every year annually, um, all the people in the town would, would go out on little boats and have a big water balloon fight in the middle of their marsh. Uh, oh, wow. So what that left was all this plastic water balloon pollution that was choking up animals and, and getting clogged in waterways, etc. Um, and so she decided with her mother and her friends to start advocating with the local town council to stop this water balloon fight. Now, it had been a tradition, and people really enjoyed it, but it was insanity because that same marsh for this largely uh, fishing community is the nursery for all the little baby fish mm-hmm. that are then being impacted by all these bits of plastic balloons, rubber balloons. And, um, and sure enough, they managed to start a campaign with young people in the community and they got the, um, the balloon fight banned and stopped. Uh, the water balloon fight. So, um, and now she's got more than half of the businesses in her community to sign up to be plastic, um, to cut back on plastic, to be plastic, I think it's wise they call it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, she's eight years old. Uh, <laughs> uh, That's amazing. And uh, so there's a lot of young people out there. There's networks, there's support, there's resources, there's tools. So for young people who care, for anybody that cares about these issues, um, the first and First thing we all are, are storytellers, as Ashton said, we're all storytellers. We can all spread the word. That's a very powerful thing that we can do. Look at our own behavior. Um, Ashton and I just launched a YouTube uh, page that's, that we're doing lots of different videos on tips on, on what we all can do in our homes to reduce plastic and waste and things like that. So there's all sorts of stuff we can do. But I think, you know, uh, we also have to remember as adults to vote and as young people um, also, to get yeah. in the political process, because fundamentally, that's that's really where the change needs to happen. And always remember the power that your wallet holds. Yeah. You know, buy from companies that support what you do. You know, if yeah. we, that's it's it, consumers can make incredible changes in giant companies. Yeah, shopping is politics. Yeah. Right. No, of course. I know. I, I read recently uh, they just banned plastic bags in New York State City, rather, which. It's fantastic. That's happened in London a couple of years ago. Um, I, I, I'm based in New York, but I go backwards and forwards a lot. So I'd often get confused and get caught short. I go down the supermarket in London, you spend like a weekly shop and they're like, we've got no bag. I'm like, okay, how do I take this lot home? And yet you, it's, it's caught me short a few times, but then you come to the supermarket or used to in Manhattan and they double bag everything. Yes. So it was, I'm glad that that's finally stopped. Um, have you guys ever been on your expeditions and you've been scared? Something's happened that's kind of been a bit out of your comfort zone. And whether that's swimming with sharks, which I think would scare the hell out of me. <laughs> well, I will, I will start and say, 
uh, out of all of the kind of crazy things that we have done, including swimming with great whites and swimming with hundreds of gray reef sharks in the middle of nuclear fallout uh, in the Marshall Islands. No, I have personally never been scared on a trip, but Philippe has a great story about that. Yeah, I um, have never been frightened by animals or nature. Um, I have a healthy respect for the sharks and the saltwater crocodiles and all the different stuff we've, we've seen and worked with. Um, but people, uh, more than once, have definitely given me a, a, a bit of a fright. People are a lot more unpredictable, a lot more dangerous. Um, so I've been I've been chased through streets by by armed thugs and uh, been you know uh, uh, in places where we were threatened uh, by the legal for police. You know, in some countries that have. Uh, um, that have come around and, and uh, asked for bribes and things like that when we're filming and threatened us in, in pretty clear terms if we don't give them said bribes, which we never do, but um, it's a difficult thing to, to negotiate your way out of. Um, so, yeah, people have been unpredictable um, in places that I've been, but animals are, 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 you know, not so much. Yeah, so is the people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not all people, very few amount of people, but... Well, that's yeah. the other thing is that, you know, we both find when you travel places, 99.9% of people, no matter where you are, they just want to live their life. They just want to get on with their work and, yeah. just, you know, they're yeah, nice. They're friendly. Yeah. I, I, um, uh, those have been the rare circumstances. Most of the time I've always been welcomed. I've always felt welcomed and safe uh, pretty much anywhere I've been. Yeah. Agreed. Wow. And what, what's, what, what's been your, your kind of your most exciting, fantastic experience? It can be a human as well. <laughs> I would say, I think um, while I was uh, filming my, my TEDx talk down in Antarctica, just being on Antarctica um, and as part of our safety training, we had to spend the night out on the ice one night and kind of build our own uh, ice cave um, from scratch. And I think sleeping in my ice hole that I built myself in the middle of Antarctica and hearing nothing, you know, there's just not really any sounds there was a night I will never, ever forget for the rest of my life. And that didn't scare you. That would scare the hell out of me. Um, and no, but I really had to pee a lot. Because <laughs> <laughs> Antarctica is super, super dry. It's like a giant desert. Um, so you have to drink so much water so you don't get dehydrated and then it's cold. So I had to get up multiple times in the evening and it's not easy to get out of your sleeping bag into your giant clothes to try to, you know, hobble over to the, um, bathroom tent. Uh, so I will say that, yeah, that was, but that was a night, you know, it was, it was uncomfortable and it was a little scary, but it was one of those nights, you know, you spend most nights sleeping comfortably at home in your own bed, if you're lucky. And that night I will never forget it for the rest of my life. It was incredible. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's, I'm sitting here with a massive grin on my face thinking I'd have just held it. <laughs> I would say, you know, my, uh, in the 1960s, my father and grandfather had a research uh, expedition in the Red Sea off the coast of Sudan called Conshelf 2. And uh, it was an expedition to see if human beings could live underwater for extended periods of time. So they built a research station and lived underwater, well, my, my, uh, the crew did, for a month. 
and it's the first time anybody had done this, um, the ruins of that are still there off of Port Sudan in the Red Sea. And filming for the BBC about 10 years ago, I had an opportunity to dive on those ruins and, um, and, and see places I, a place I had grown up watching uh, images of in, in the film The World Without Sun that my father and grandfather did about that experience. And um, so being able to, to dive on that, not to mention that it was like the reef is just absolutely spectacular and there were schooling hammerheads just off in the distance and, you know, enormous grouper and reef sharks swimming all over. I mean, it was a paradise. And then to be on this futuristic kind of ruins of this underwater habitat that my father and grandfather built so many decades ago, that was probably my favorite um, adventure. Amazing. Can you imagine the stories you're going to tell your daughter when she's old enough to listen? And they're going to be fantastic. What an amazing adventure you two are on. And it's not stopping either, I'm sure. Yeah, not stopping. And we intend to take her with us. So. Yep. Yeah, of course. Now, what's the name of your YouTube channel so we can just tell give that a shout out? Because I'd love to look at that as well. Uh, well, it's brand new. So it has a few uh, videos. We're adding new stuff all the time. Yeah. It's just uh, Ashlyn and Philippe Cousteau. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I want to say a massive, massive thank you. That's been such a pick-me-up to a crappy Monday I had. Um, talking, talking to you, too. Thank you for having us. We love you, and we love everything that you're doing. It's just so important, and thank you. Oh, well, hopefully we want to revisit and come back because I know that Charlene was gutted she couldn't make this, so I'm sure she'll want to... Maybe we'll come back in a couple of months. Well, we'd love that. We'd love that. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that fun podcast with Philippe and Ashlyn Cousteau. That was just a massive privilege to have them both talking to me with Mission on our podcast series. Sadly, Charlene couldn't be with us on that one, which I know that she was quite bummed about. So we're going to do another one in a couple of months to have a catch up with Philippe and Ashlyn and see what they've been up to since. But our next guest coming up on the next podcast is someone that I'm actually growing quitely obsessed with because I'm I, her work is just gorgeous I really really love it and she's an incredible English designer and her name is Nick Wakeman she's the founder of Studio Nicholson so please tune in for that that's going to be up next and we just f- wish you all the best everyone that listens to us our whole audience our community um, stay safe and stay well in these just incredibly strange surreal time okay All the best. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.